revelations of sexual misconduct from a number of NGOs in the past year has sparked an important global conversation on addressing this issue. But what is best practice to approach the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse in the sector? A panel at the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference provided a platform for organisations to learn from and share their approaches and experiences. Um, so welcome back from lunch. Um, this section, um, this session is looking at the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse in the aid sector. Um, and this is something I'm incredibly passionate about, not least because I entered the aid sector in the 1990s in Eastern Europe. And so at that point, um, it was a massive issue. And there was um, really this big sentiment around addressing sexual exploitation and abuse in the sector and in the early 2000s, there was a lot of um, research done in Western Africa, which some of you might remember. And, you know, that led to a lot of initiatives and a lot of change. And there was the um, Secretary General's Bulletin on Sexual Exploitation and Abuse at the time. And a number of organisations developed their policies on the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. So I want to provide that history um, by way of saying that where we are today is not new. This is not a new issue. And in some senses, what's happened over the last year or so um, is incredibly sad given that we've been here before um, and so I think what's what's important in many ways is to work out why we're here again um, what's happened because we had those policies we've had the Secretary General speak out very clearly we've had zero um, zero tolerance policies in the past one of the um, pieces of work that we've done at Humanitarian Advisory Group, and you'll see this around, is um, a think piece on this. And one of the things that we recommend in that think piece is that we have honest, difficult, and challenging conversations. And I hope that that's what we can have here today. I don't think there's a lot of point in us um, just having surface-level conversations. I think we need to ask ourselves the tough questions as to why we are here another 15 years on. Um, I think it's really exciting that the Australian sector has taken it seriously. Um, I have been really encouraged by conversations and reviews that we've done with some of the Australian NGOs, and particularly the work that's been led by ACFID and by VIFM, which has been um, really fabulous contribution and has obviously led <clears throat> to the report that was published at the end of last year. Um, and that report, um, and we've got the authors here today, which is, which is really wonderful, um, it will be a focus in the sense of looking at some of those key recommendations that came out of that report. Um, so just for those of you, um, I'm sure everybody's familiar with it, but it's called Shaping the Path. And it was an independent review into practice and response of ACFID members in the prevention of sexual misconduct. And so that will sort of provide a bit of framing um, for this session today. But I think what's really exciting about that report is that it takes us beyond policy. Yes, we need to talk about policies and regulations, but we had policies and regulations 15 years ago. So yes, we need to improve them. There's no question about that. But if we don't also start asking the really hard questions about where power lies and what the cultures are of the organisations we work in, then nothing's really going to shift. Those policies will remain on paper and organisations will be continue to practice in the same way. So to help us um, unpack this really very challenging um, issue, we have a really fabulous panel here today. And I'm just going to introduce them all um, initially because the way that we're going to hold the panel will be more of a, an interactive conversation um, rather than each person doing a presentation. There are no PowerPoints, which is incredible. <laughs> 
Um, so first to introduce Juliet um, Bressington, who is the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Aid Risk Management Fraud Control Branch at DFAT. So she's responsible across the aid program risk and due diligence and all the safeguarding um, and has experience across a broad range of public policy and program design um, and previous to this role um, and has also been working on the new DFAT policy. So we'll be able to help um, provide some information around that. Um, Rosie Ween, who's sitting next to her, is the Chief Executive at WaterAid Australia, and she's had about two decades international development experience, um, including living and working in Indonesia for about seven years, but she's also the founding and committee member of Not In My Workplace, um, which addresses workplace um, harassment um, and abuse across all industries in Victoria, so it comes with sort of that broader um, experience. I'd also at this point like to um, introduce Tida, who's on the line with us. Hello, Tida. Um, from Cambodia. So, Tida, can you hear us? Yeah, I'm looking Wonderful. It's very lovely to have Tida. She's um, dialing in from Cambodia. Tida is the head of operations for WaterAid in Cambodia um, and has 15 years' experience with a number of um, different NGOs, but coming from a finance and administration background. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Tida for um, a WaterAid review and was absolutely bowled over by her experience and her insights into what we need to change in the sector around safeguarding. So having her here to share her experience is really wonderful. Sarah Burrows is here joining us from ACFID. So she's a senior advisor on partnerships and policy at ACFID, um, which is the peak body for Australian NGOs. Um, and she spent the last 12 months coordinating ACFID's response to PSEA. And that includes response to the independent review um, by VIFM and also the review of ACFID's code of conduct. Um, and last but not least, um, Micah, who is here as one of the authors, along with her um, colleague Liz, who's also a co-author of that report that I've referred to. So Micah is a forensic physician at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, and um, together with their team, they've crafted um, this report, which really does um, provide a very clear framework around what we need to do um, as a sector. So that might be um, a good place for me to stop talking, and um, to hand over to Micah, because I think um, in terms of framing what we're talking about today, it would be really good to understand from you, you know, what were the findings and recommendations that came out of that report and what should we be focusing on today in this discussion? Okay. Look, thank you, Kate, for the introduction and the opportunity to speak. Just for my own um, interest, I guess, are most people familiar with the report, um, have seen it or see some familiar faces here? Um, okay, look, that's great. Uh, so hopefully the content will be to some extent uh, familiar to you, but I will take you through some of the uh, key findings and um, important messages from our perspective. We did feel really privileged to be engaged in this important um, subject uh, and to be asked by ACFID to conduct this review. Um, and uh, to be part of a response that occurred as a result of those reports that came out of uh, the UK almost exactly a year ago now. The review was a big piece of work. Um, it took place over a period of about six months. Um, it involved um, seven different modalities for uh, contributing information, five of which were formally analysed. Um, and there was multiple levels of, um, and culminated ultimately in the findings that resulted in 31 recommendations um, and a report of 213 pages. 
Um, we were really impressed by the enthusiastic participation of the ACFID members, um, their partner organisations, stakeholders and community members, and this spoke volumes of the sector's desire for continual improvement in their work. Um, in particular, we're grateful to organisations and to some individuals who uh, contributed information about specific incidents, um, which was something that they had not been asked to do before. Um, and this was really generous information that really helped to inform, um, inform the contents of the report. For the purpose of this review, um, sexual misconduct is defined as sexual exploitation of both adults and children, uh, sexual abuse of both adults and children, um, and sexual harassment. So in terms of the findings, I would like to draw out the following. Um, there were 76 incidents that were reported by 20 um, organisations. There were 66 organisations that did not report incidents, and there were 33 organisations that de declined to respond. Um, and these incidents occurred or reported over a three-year period. This did confirm the sad suspicion that uh, sexual misconduct does indeed occur within ACFID member organisations and that it was an important area to focus on. Um, however, we did find that this likely represents an underestimation um, of reporting based on country estimates and information from DFAT. This, alongside other tools, told us that there was work to be done in increasing the number of reports from people affected by sexual misconduct and also about organisations to a central repository that can be used to inform the practice and response to incidents and the prevention of future incidents. We found that, as is consistent with other areas of public life, that there are limitations to the ability of non-compulsory systems to collect information due to their inability to overcome inherent conflicts of interest with, for example, um, impacts on uh, reputation. Um, we found that due to the nature of the Australian aid sector, it was important that the collection of information about incidents be broad enough to encompass um, all aid organisations that work um, internationally, um, acknowledging that, and not just ACFID members or those who uh, receive funding from DFAT, acknowledging that does, that does not comprise the entire Australian aid sector. And for this reason, we recommended the establishment of a reportable conduct scheme to sit on the auspices of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. It is important to note that despite finding evidence of sexual misconduct occurring amongst ACFID member organisations, the number of incidents um, and supported by information from the qualitative tools, such as the focus groups and the interviews, did not suggest that there was a problem with uh, sexual misconduct being endemic in the sense that it was, we did not find evidence that it was any more prevalent than in other areas of society more broadly, which is still a high rate of um, sexual misconduct. But there was no increase, we did not find evidence of increased endemicity over and beyond um, baseline levels from the communities from which um, the figures derive. In terms of the types of incidents that were reported, we found that this was divided roughly in two fairly similar sized groups. Um, so approximately half of the cases constituted sexual exploitation and sexual abuse um, perpetrated by aid workers who were predominantly locally engaged um, against beneficiaries of aid. And the other group, um, the other approximate half, constituted incidents of sexual harassment, um, often occurring between aid workers and often at headquarters. The most common offshore locations of incidents were PNG, Vanuatu and Timor-Leste. Um, reflecting the regions where um, rates of violence against women are known to be high and also regions where um, ACFID members are active. 
Most victim survivors from affected populations were children, um, and this could indicate a reporting bias due to strong child protection mechanisms in place. Approximately half of the cases were substantiated, and this was fairly consistent amongst all types of incident. There was a sizable minority of cases proportionally uh, that involved, of those that involved um, potential criminal misconduct um, that were not reported to local authorities. And this, alongside with the information from the focus groups and interviews, supported our finding that there was an over-reliance in organisations on internal reporting mechanisms in responding to incidents. We felt that this could inhibit appropriate justice outcomes. And for this reason, we recommended a reframing of the emphasis on reporting to local authorities to make this a default response in cases where there was uh, potential criminal um, allegations, unless it was not in the best interest or the express wishes of the victim survivor. Uh, we also recommended the capacity of local authorities to be strengthened in order to improve the response to incidents. We recognise that people form diverse relationships and have a reasonable expectation to a private life, including when they engage in field work. We also recognise that transactional sex is not inherently exploitative. At the same time, there are factors specific to aid work that can increase the risk of misconduct. And these include maladaptive responses to stress, uh, particularly when they involve alcohol and other drugs, um, and power differentials which can be augmented in a humanitarian setting as opposed to develop, uh, development setting. We found that um, organisations need to talk about sex and healthy sexual relationships and to animate policies and procedures through discussion. And this includes consultation um, with um, local populations um, and uh, have partnerships that um, um, invoke a, um, a community of trust. We found that the victim-survivor needs need to be central to responses of sexual misconduct incidents, including issues around confidentiality. Um, we found that ACFID member organisations need to improve a culture of reporting to strengthen their complaints mechanisms and investigation capacities so that victims, um, perpetrators and bystanders have different expectations of outcomes of inappropriate behaviours. Senior leadership needs to model appropriate behaviour and zero tolerance to inaction towards gender inequality, homophobia, um, through their words and through their actions. The ACFID Code of Conduct, the Quality Assurance Framework and DFAT's Gender Disability and Child Protection Policies provide a sound platform for ACFID member organisations to adopt stronger safeguarding responses for the protection of adults. Um, the sector is already has significant um, collaboration and there is an opportunity for sharing resources and learning. The priority areas are victim survivor misconduct policies, um, complaint mechanisms, um, investigations, ethics and medical legal advisors, advice, uh, downstream partner safeguarding, capacity building, monitoring of misconduct prevalence uh, and trends, and the monitoring and dissemination of um, international best practice. ACFID has a key role in driving and supporting improved safeguarding practices by its members. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, hopefully that provides a really good framing for the discussions we go forward. The rest of the discussion we will have largely um, at the panel um, going questions be between the panellists. Um, but we wanted Micah to be able to provide that context um, and particularly the recommendations. Um, and what I might do is draw on you as a starting point, Juliet, because 
The report refers a lot to the role of donors, um, and particularly around that policies and regulations. And as Michael just pointed out, you know, the existing DFAT policies actually provide a really strong foundation. And I think particularly the work you've done around child protection, um, you know, the reviews show incredibly strongly how successful a number of the Australian organisations are in their child protection approaches. Um, so DFAT's looking at developing a new policy. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the drive for that and which recommendations it might address? <coughs> So I think it's important just to, to sort of restate where Australia sits internationally on the safeguarding um, construct. And we have some pretty good systems in place, but that's not to say that there isn't a lot of work that we can improve on and that there isn't more that we can do. So I just think it's important to acknowledge that we do have a good foundation that we're working on, which is, which is great. I also think one of the key parts or the key thinking that sits behind our policy and one of the key key benefits that we see is that it will very clearly express what our expectations are and what we expect for all of our funded partners. So just to state, our policy will apply not just to uh, development partners. Our intention is that it will apply to all DFAT partners. And that's a pretty significant um, position, as does our child protection policy. How we implement that will... And there may be some phasing in the timeframes that we're involved in. But um, we're taking a very strong position. And as I said, I think it's really important that the policy just sets out very, very clearly and very unambiguously what those expectations are. So we're expecting the policy to come out pretty soon. We're operating on a pretty tight timeframe. Uh, the team is sitting over here today. Um, We've got the end of March, early April scheduled for the launch. Now we're looking at when the implementation aspects of that might kick off, um, but that's the timeframes that we're working to, to having our policy and those expectations set out very much by expect them around the beginning of April. There's consultations which are out at the moment. There's a, a website if anyone's interested. Um, we're seeking public, consult, public um, submissions to that. Uh, the... They close on Friday, so there's not much time. But um, we've had an extensive process of having meetings, having some seminars, talking to, to various groups, as well as submissions via our website. Um, and there's various mechanisms of which we're, we're very happy to receive any submissions by. Um, I think it's really important, you know, we really value the findings that are outlined in the, in the VIFM report, as well as some of the other... Um, work that's been happening internationally. Uh, there is a lot of alignment and a lot of um, broad um, agreement on the importance of those issues. I think one of the things that we will really acknowledge and really it's really important to stress throughout this process is the importance of cultural change and that's come through very strongly in all of the, the processes that are underway and that's something that will be very clearly reflected in our policy. And that we're just, you know, the commitment that we have to the leadership that, that is required and the demonstration of that leadership and those expectations, again, will be very clearly set out. And I think that's a really important statement. Um, it will also uh, very clearly clarify what the reporting requirements are and what our expectations are around those reporting requirements. Obviously, alignment and reducing the impact of those requirements is something that we're very conscious of as well but we already have a systems and processes in place for child protection. 
we'll be looking to, to improve and, and streamline those as much as possible. But having that reporting requirement is really important because we'll use that information to continuously assess and understand what's actually happening and to sort of help it inform changes and changes to our approach, et cetera, and where the emphasis uh, is, is put. Uh, the policy also will have a very strong statement around the zero tolerance of inaction as well, and there are some important sort of distinctions um, around the information that is received and how that's um, actually then uh, how, we, how we manage that. But I think just important, just to sum up, the policy will be pragmatic, uh, it'll be risk-based, and we're very much looking to how we can support the implementation of that policy just to make sure that the communications, the guidance... Uh, and the information that sits behind it is as clear as possible. Thank you. Super, thank you. And I'm sure there will be lots of um, questions for all the panellists. Just jot them down. We will try and make as much time at the end as possible to be able to have a bit more of a, a discussion. Um, but I just wanted to pick up on a, a couple of um, points that Micah raised earlier around some of the specific recommendations. And I know that, um, Ackford, you're doing a lot of work, Sarah, around responding to some of these. So there are some of them that don't necessarily sit within... ACFID's control, but because they relate to Australian NGOs, you obviously have a strong role to play. And I think two of the really interesting ones is the reportable conduct scheme, but also the passporting and registration. And so it'd be interesting to get um, ACFID's reflections, I guess, on the potential implementation of those recommendations. Absolutely. Um, so the reportable conduct scheme is uh, probably the, the key and the, the most important um, recommendation coming out of the report. It's also quite a complex um, recommendation that comes out of the report. So uh, what we do know from um, the work that Vipham has done is that one of the key um, ways of making sure that this issue is transparent, that a culture can be shifted, but also that we get clear information um, and learning and so we can alter and change our responses is by shifting reporting not just to internally but also externally and, and increasing that transparency around uh, reporting of these issues. Um, Building, I think, off the work that DFAT and their partners, including NGOs, have done over many years on child protection, we do see increased child protection reporting. Um, and so absolutely welcome DFAT's continuation of that into, um, into PSEA in the policy. But we're also quite conscious that that partnership with DFAT covers a small number um, of Australian NGOs um, and Australian aid sector. And so with the introduction of the Charities Commission, there's a real opportunity for, um, for a reportable conduct scheme to cover charities more broadly. Um, and particularly recently, they have released their external conduct standards. Uh, and one of those standards is focused on the protection of vulnerable people. And uh, what's fabulous is that's not now limited to child protection, but it's actually addressing all vulnerable people. So we see there's a real opportunity there um, as working with the ACNC uh, to have that reportable conduct scheme sit in place. Now, this isn't a unique idea. Uh, the UK Charity Commission has something similar. Um, there's about half a dozen serious incidents that all charities, both domestic and international, in the UK are required to report. Um, and interestingly, recently, out of the um, Victorian inquiry into child abuse, there's also been uh, a reportable conduct, a mandatory reportable conduct scheme um, to the Children and Young People's Commissioner in Victoria. So this is recognised as a way to sort of enhance transparency and accountability and learning. 
We do know that the ACNC is open to this idea, so they have said that um, if the government agrees to it and, and resources it, that they are very happy and willing to implement it, and obviously we would certainly call on the government to implement this work. Um, so we, uh, as ACFID, will be working across a range of organisations, uh, including the ACNC, DFAT um, and others, to sort of um, to promote this idea, to encourage transparency, to uh, get that reportable conduct scheme as a commitment where we can, um, and to really encourage that transparency and accountability of reporting more broadly. Mm. So that's where we're going with this, um, and certainly we'll be drawing on things like the UK Commission and Victoria to sort of help us frame how that works. And then the other area you talk about is, is the passporting. Uh, this is a really challenging issue that is um, being looked at globally. So this speaks very much to that sort of prevention uh, end of the, the framework um, for PSEA. So the idea that um, the fluidity of uh, people moving within the sector uh, provides some risk uh, for people who undertake sexual misconduct to move quite freely. And we've seen some of that happen uh, with the reports out of the UK. Um, this is particularly challenging in our sector where there is a great fluidity between NGOs working for NGOs, DFAT, private sector, uh, multilaterals, but particularly in the humanitarian space just because of the speed of onboarding and deployment that's required. Um, so this is a, a real um, challenging area. Um, obviously, each organisation, particularly for active members, but more broadly, need to have their own vetting systems. Uh, so uh, police checks and uh, interview questions and referee checks and all that sort of thing. Um, but that doesn't necessarily stop this international space. Uh, so we um, have been working with, I guess, our counterparts, so Bond in the UK and interaction around this space. Our members are working quite actively on a number of existing test ideas. So, for example, um, the Interagency Standing Committee to the UN uh, has developed, I think it's a final draft, um, of a misconduct scheme, an interagency misconduct scheme. Uh, and a number of our um, NGOs uh, are actually involved in, in testing and trialling that process. Uh, I know that government, so I know that um, the UK government is working with Interpol on some things, and there's, so there's a whole range of international ideas being tested. There's a whole challenge with this in how do you balance it with legal requirements, how do you balance it with natural justice, if you get on a list, how can you get off a list, um, how do you maintain this as survivor-centric, so I think all these things that are focused on reporting, both external reporting or vetting, um, we need to make sure that that doesn't take over the survivor-centric approach and we're not constantly just feeding a reporting process rather than thinking about what we're trying to do. Um, but we are sort of keeping track of a whole load of these things and looking to see what comes out of each of these issues as they navigate those legal justice. Um, and so it's really great to see a lot of our members are actively engaged in that and we can start to draw lessons from that. Uh, both to look at what is happening that we can introduce into our code of conduct, for example, to strengthen the vetting within our members, but also how we can make sure those align um, the best way that we can. Excellent. Thank you. And I think the thing that's really exciting about that is to hear you talk so much about how we're drawing on what's happening in other bits of the world. Um, and, you know, the linkages with Bond in the UK and I'm um, talking about the UK Charity Commission and being able to model because obviously this conversation is happening globally. So being able to draw on those aspects is incredibly important. Um, and 
I, I guess from DFAT's perspective, you then have to engage with all the donor counterparts as well. And there were the commitments that came out of the Safeguarding Summit. So it'd be really interesting to understand how that's happening in terms of complementing initiatives globally. Mm, sure. Thank you. Um, so there is a lot of complementarity between complement territory. Is that a word? They all sort of align, which is really nice. Um, and the findings of the Biffin report and, and um, sort of other surveys all sort of uh, line up in a, a very similar direction. So there is a lot happening internationally. We're following all of that very closely. Of course, um, Australia is a very active member um, working in the with the UK uh, Safeguarding Technical Working Group, um, which brought together the, the summit which led to the 22 commitments, etc. Now, that's an ongoing process. The expectations are that that um, technical working group will transfer responsibilities over to the, um, the DAC, the OECD, which are also establishing a working group, uh, um, a reference group um, on the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. So Australia will continue to, to push um, and work very much with like-minded donors um, through those processes and look to share those experiences and translate them um, as best we can as well. Uh, there's also expectation that there'll be an international safeguarding hub that might be established and that will um, be a resource process and we'll look to see how the, those linkages might... Um, there might be some sharing of the resourcing and the information training materials and expertise and you know, research and, and other mechanisms there. So there's a lot happening internationally and it's really important to sort of stay connected and to make sure that we share our experiences into that because Australia does have some, some very strong experiences and, and people do look to Australia in this area. Um, we've been connecting up with our um, like-minded donors, Canada, um, the UK, New Zealand, etc., and they are very much looking to us um, for advice at the moment, just to give you a sense as to where Australia fits on that scale. And um, as Sarah's already mentioned, there are some very interesting um, developments happening with the relationship between DFID and Interpol with a five-year program as to how they might do that tracking. And that's all processes that we're watching as well. And we're working, um, following very much the DFID safeguarding approach. But as I said, they only established their safeguarding unit um, very recently. And um, this is something Australia's been doing for a number of years now. So. Wonderful. Thank you. And it's actually really exciting um, that internationally people are looking to Australia. And you know, that's, it's come through very strongly when we've done reviews. The child protection approach is so good, and it's almost like the recommendation is do what you did with child protection. <laughs> and, that, and that kind of covers it. So I think it is wonderful that, that internationally people look to us. Um, what I'd like to do now is move from that global space and discussion and um, take it very much down to the national level. And I guess a comment that Sarah made um, in terms of really keeping in mind, why are we doing this? Um, and that whole idea of, you know, we're, we're doing it to, to better serve and, and um, be able to keep safe the communities we work with. Um, and so what I'd love to do is to go over to Tida. I'm afraid the connection's not good enough, Tida, for us to be able to, to see you and say hello, I don't think. Um, but can you hear us clearly? Yeah. I can hear you, Kate. How, how about you? Wonderful. Yes, we can hear you really clearly, Tita. And thank you so much for joining us. So Tita's joined us all the way from Cambodia, as I explained. Um, and uh, as I said, Tita is incredibly passionate about safeguarding. And that was something that's come through very clearly um, in our previous conversations and in her work with Rosie. So um, Tita, it might be good just to start off with understanding why you're so passionate about safeguarding. Thank you, Kate, for... A great question. Yeah, uh, 
the reason I'm so passionate about the safeguarding because I want to see everyone, especially women and girls and vulnerable people to live free from harm and abuse. And I also would love to take this great opportunity to sharing you all my own experience when I just joined working in a geo sector long, long times ago. And it is my first journey that start working with the NGO sector. After I joined that organization about just a few months, and I often got a text message from one of the expert colleagues. Yes, and when I received the text, and I feel what what did he mean? And I, I think aware that it's something related to harassment, but I did not uh, react anything to him just as uh, what you mean something like that and the and then he replied he just teasing me only yeah and he keep texting the similar message and then I started feel very very uncomfortable and to work with and to communicate with him sometimes I wish I would not see him in my office and and since I joined that organization, I did not get any proper induction related to the people policy, related to the procedure for this kind of thing. So I'm not sure what should I do. Uh, should I report to someone or should I talk to someone or not? But I feel very uh, embarrassed if I told someone about that and I decide to keep quiet and just uh, maybe looking for a new job. Yeah. And then few, few months later, I got the offer uh, at a new organization. And of course, I had decided to leave that organization uh, without hesitation. And after I left that organization, I still keep connecting with the other uh, colleague that as a friend. And I was told that uh, one of our peers that, that working in the province have baby with, with that man. Yeah. So we feel very, very sorry and very painful that the organization did not take any action and also allow him to work as normal. Yeah. And I realized that it was the sexual exploitation. And the staff, the peer staff did not get any support from the organization but also just only get the ghost the i mean that the, the ghost or discriminate around her story yes so we feel very uh, uh, shameful on this because uh, as working in the aid sector we supposed to improve people life and protect people from harm or from abuse but uh, the NGO staff uh, did not do like that, yes. That is all from, from me, Kate. Tita, thank you so much. And um, I think it's so brave to share that experience, particularly when it's a room of people and you're not here with us. But I can promise you that everybody's listening very um, intently and there's lots of nodding. And we really appreciate you sharing it because it's so important that we are grounded in this discussion with what's actually happening um, in, in the field. And I think you're talking not only about the behavior of somebody, but also the response or the lack of response in the organization, which is exactly um, what we are talking about. So thank you. 
Um, you know, so much of the uh, safeguarding questions comes back to this issue of gender inequality, Tita, and I think that, that the question around context and even the report came out with different contexts have different um, levels or tolerances of, of sexual exploitation and abuse. So could you give us a little bit around the context in Cambodia from a, a gender equality perspective and how that impacts on the safeguarding question? Mm, yeah, thank you, Ken. Uh, per my own observation, gender equality perspective in Cambodia has been a little bit improved on certain areas. So, for example, more women participation in labor market and women get more empowerment in decision making on financial control in family level only. And but the the change mostly happening on the the urban the family not in rural family and slightly increase the number of women in political activity but still not really enough and however if we look back and the social norm or attitude on gender equality are still a big issue in Cambodia you know because uh, Cambodian people still believe that uh, men are better than women in terms of playing a role in the position of uh, leadership, decision-making, and maybe they think men are more intelligent, and especially men stronger both uh, in physical and, and mental, uh, uh, mental health than women. Yeah, but uh, and women still the one who responsible for doing the housework looking after the children. So even more women participated in the labor market, but the housework and the looking after the children still women responsibility. Yeah. And and if we look back look on the social protection, I I am referring to the uh, violent sexual violent sexual harassment. I think uh Mostly, or yeah, mostly women are the victim and men are the perpetrator. And there are a lot of uh, sad, sad cases happening on women and uh, related to sexual violence and sexual harassment happening in Cambodia. I think I could not uh, describe it during discussion. Yeah. And also, women could not even get the equal value or equal respect from the other, especially from men. So, example, our social norm, we it okay to make sexually explicit joke, and it's okay to make fun of women and degrade women dignity. Women are judged on 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 the look, yeah. So it's absolutely very very uh, difficult to call that out. Uh, all that attitude out that is not uh, appropriate because our social social norms think it is normal for them. And if I am being a woman or you are being a woman, I think we really don't want any uh, special treatment uh, from the other. Just want to be equal. So between men and women. We have equal right, we have equal opportunity, we have equal participation, something like that. Yeah. 
Thank you, Tita. And so um, I think maybe just as a final reflection, it'd be really interesting to hear from you because then working, people bring their culture into the workplace. So staff come from the community, they bring those um, social norms with them. So what's WaterAid been doing in Cambodia to try and champion safeguarding and to overcome some of those cultural norms? Yeah, we, for WaterAid Cambodia, we trying our best to build a culture where we can create a safe place for all. And maybe I can talk through uh, a little bit through our process, uh, what, what we try to do. We have a safeguarding or global code of conduct policy, and it just updated uh, maybe six months ago. And we we involved to all staff. I mean, we hand over the policy to the staff, and also we organize a consultation workshop. And and then we divide it into two four groups. And each group they discuss in very detail in their in in one section in the policy. So they discuss in detail in each paragraph, in each sentence, what does it mean? What does the, the safeguarding policy mean to them? And they share to the whole group to, in order, we, we, we doing that because we want to make sure the policy are understood and the staff understand well about the meaning. They, the staff understand what, what they have to do, what are their commitment to their policy. And yeah, it, it was very good, a lot of discussion and clarification. And and also we translated the the policy into local language. So we hope it will be will be more helpful for staff to get more understanding. And it's not about the gender issue, we also have two gender training and involve all the staff members. I mean it related gender policy, related gender basic training. And and we, we try to build a trust environment or safe environment that uh, all the all the staff can talk about uh, the gender issue and sharing their own experience and also sharing their own perspective of the gender equality. And it was very very good uh, uh, discussion at the time. And and I would like uh, to highlight some positive aspects of spending. Uh, we can see that uh, some of our team get really more understanding about the studies and also the the gender, yeah, gender equity, gender equality, and they also brought to calling out if someone of the team uh, say inappropriate related to harassment or bullying. So sometimes because of our culture, our norm, it is normal to to. to Say about the joke related to sexual, but we are inside what it. Uh, sometimes, I mean, the, the social is okay, but the, we are working for what it. So we try to build the the culture, the attitude. It's not okay to talk about this, and sometimes staff still unintentionally to talk about it. And the other team member, they they brave or confident enough to calling out immediately. It's not appropriate. Uh, behavior, something like that, yeah. And so uh, this is very uh, positive change inside World Aid. And during the discussion, we have a lot of uh, questions and also clear gray area that we need to do more further. 
And as you may know, a board aid uh, approach we working in a partnership with local NGO with the government. So we're not just working with our staff. And we question ourselves if the incident conducted by our partner or by government counterpart, what is our role? How would make sure the government counterpart accountable with the action regarding the safeguarding? So it's very, very difficult. And we have the example that uh, our team, one of our team uh, members joined the workshop and the government counterpart talked very, I mean, uh, related to uh, sexual harassment to her. And we try to discuss what should we do, what more aid should talk to the government counterpart to calling out this attitude. It's not uh, normal. Yeah. So very uh, difficult. So this is something that what aid have to uh, working on more and also uh, reporting reporting procedure or process is still not uh, clear for us yet because it seems like team not so sure of, okay when should I report and what type of attitude that I uh, that the team should report so we, we need to working on that and provide more support orientation and regular training to to build their confidence uh, or reporting and to build the trust uh, environment as well related to confidential teaching. And also, uh, what is uh, Cambodia? We, we always talking about the core value of what is. So the core value of what is is one of our topic during our reflection. We always talk about it. And even during the team meeting, I mean, their own team meeting, they also talking about uh, what aid value as well as one of the their topic for discussions. So yeah, that's all from from me, Ken. Tita, um, thank you so much. I think that's really wonderful to have some concrete examples and congratulations on so much of the work I know you have been leading um, in Cambodia with the with Water Aid. I think it's really exciting. And even though, as you say, there are areas for future improvement, there's some really strong practice happening, which is very exciting. So thank you. Um, and maybe um, to Rosie, I mean, it's really interesting. This is one country program, and as a chief executive, you have to many, manage many um, programs. And um, Tida talked about um, the, the values of water aid and that idea of culture. How do you go about promoting a positive culture at that scale? I'm going to steal the microphone just because we know it's after lunch and we can feel the energy <laughs> dropping because also the, the topic, yeah, it's heavy. It's it's part of all of our lives, and as Kate said, it's why we all work in the sector to change power, to change issues of gender inequality, and that's really key for me and why I've been in the sector. I can't believe I said I've been over 20 years. I'm not sure how it's possible I've been 47 this year. So anyway, um, for me, it has always been a key driver, thinking about gender equality, and I'm very conscious, and we all are, that... You know, often our language falls into that binary trap of gender being about men and women. And as my 15-year-old son regularly reminds me, there is, you know, gender fluidity and it is something that we need to be really conscious about, um, particularly when we're talking about this topic, because as the report shows and as the... Um, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's recent report, Everybody's Business, looking at sexual harassment in Australian workplaces, 
It's an issue of power. Yeah, so when we're looking at issues of gender identity, age, disability, you're often more vulnerable um, and the issues of power are further exacerbated. So that's really driven me throughout my career, issues of addressing power, gender inequality, and also the sense that we can always do better. I can always do better. And that's really um, informed WaterAid's work around safeguarding. But I want to just pause for a minute and go back to Tita's experience that she shared. So I heard her say it was her first job in an NGO. She was a young woman going into the finance team. Let's think about that. Her age, a young woman, we just heard the experience of women in Cambodia going into the finance, operations department. I don't know about, you know, some organisations, how much power do you have in a, as a junior person in a finance team? She's a national staff. She experienced sexual, sorry, Tita, experienced sexual harassment by an expatriate older man who was in Cambodia with his wife and children, held a lot of status. So that's Tita's experience. I want each of you in the room now to put yourself in that. What's your role? Are you the program manager back in Australia supporting her? Or are you the donor? Are you one of the partners that's working with Tita? Are you a friend that maybe she calls and says, She's experiencing this. Who are you in that story? And how do you feel? What's happened for you in your experience of your organisation? What's the ground underneath your feet? How firm is it for you to be clear on the policies, as Tita said? What's acceptable and what's not? Are you clear on what to do for Tita to support her or to advise her? Are you clear, yeah, have you got that strong grounding under you of those structures, the policies, the procedures, the systems? How's that feeling? Mm. But then what's, what's around you? You know, the, Tita said it so beautifully, the grey and the complexity, the culture. What have you seen when so-and-so who's very senior, Rosie, who's very senior in the organisation, makes a sexually explicit joke. What happens around you? Is she told that's not okay in this office? Or does everyone just laugh and then walk away? Or what happens in the kitchen when there's gossip about Tita and supposedly the relationship with this man? Is it just everyone brushes it off or makes fun of Tita? That's what we're dealing with within all of our organisations. And so for me as a leader, Kate, it's really been that reflection of what's my role in terms of creating that strong grounding for everybody of the things like we can control as, as leaders or in positions of power, the policies and the procedures, those structural things. But then also really thinking about what can I also do in terms of the, the culture and recognising that much of it is well and truly out of my control, but how can we create some of those conversations? And one of the recommendations in the report that we've found really useful is creating scenario-based conversations. I don't know about many of you, but it's not a common topic for me to talk about sex at work. But it's something that this report and this experience shows us we have to talk about, well, what is a healthy sexual relationship? We need to talk about the real complexity of what's the difference between performance management 
Jason, you're really not doing a good job, versus bullying. I really just don't like you, Jason, and I'm, you know. And we need to have scenarios, safe places, sorry, Jason, he's doing a wonderful job. Yeah, we need to have, we've found that these scenarios help take us with as much firmness as I can create, but then take us into the bits we actually don't know the answers to, but we have to, to talk about um, in the, the grey complex area. So Kate and I thought this might be a moment in, for us just to pause as a panel and for you to turn and talk to people around you about that experience I asked you to feel in terms of how clear are you on policies and procedures? What's the culture like? I'm not asking you to, you know, talk badly about your organisations or experiences, but just reflect on this. What's it telling you? And then we'd, we'd love to hear some thoughts back. Sorry. Yeah, so we started. Okay. I Sorry, I know that the conversation's just kicking off, but we're going to um, just wrap up the panel and then you'll be able to share some of your reflections back with us and we'll have a bit more of a conversation. And hopefully this also takes us into the tea break. But we certainly wanted to just give you an opportunity to be able to just spark a little bit of um, conversation before we, um, before we open it up for, for more questions. I know you were just getting into it, weren't you? <laughs> I think... Um, there's maybe just one final piece that um, comes through in the Viffen report that I want to cover before I open it up to the floor. Um, and that really comes down, there's the final piece in the report which talks about systems and resources. And I think everything we've talked about, right from the, the policies and the different um, possibilities around passporting, right through to culture um, and the experiences that Tito shared with us, it all costs. It all requires resources. None of this stuff happens unless you have people who have the resources to be able to put things in place. And that is going to be a fundamental question, I think, for everybody in the sector moving forward. Um, and so, Julia, I hate to put you on the spot as the only donor on the panel, but, <laughs> but I'm going to. Um, so I, I guess not even um, just for DFAT, but, you know, the donors will be really important in terms of recognising how much this is going to cost us as a sector. And so it'd be interesting to understand what you think the best ways are to resource it and how we can really make that shift in a resource sense. Sure, thank you. And it is a really important question. Um, because our policy isn't finalised yet, I can't give you a particularly firm answer on that yet, um, but just I can give you some reflections of our current <coughs> thinking around that. And watching what's happening in the UK in particular at the moment is really important and I think very, very interesting. And I have to say I'm really enjoying some of the language that's coming through in the reports there around it's not just what we do but it's how we do it. And that's the mantra that from a safeguarding perspective and, and my team in particular, we really, really push. It's not just the what, it's very much the how because the two are mutually intertwined and they're so connected and it's so critical. So the focus on the how and just making sure that there are really good systems frameworks, costings associated with that, yes, it will cost to have additional safeguarding requirements and it will cost resources to have additional reporting but that is the cost of doing business and we fully accept that that's likely to be our our expectations um from following on from the viffen report there's a working group that's working through the specifics of that and there's a there's a little bit more work just understanding how in a you know in a contracting and a more of a detailed perspective as to how um, that could be reflected, and so that it's a work in progress. Um, but I think it's important to just acknowledge that there's a lot of emphasis 
um, that we're placing on ensuring the appropriate safeguards are well-funded and well-costed um, as, a, as a key component of what we're doing. So, thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, we have about 30 minutes, and I'm actually going to... I have additional questions for the panel, if nobody has any questions. What I might do is pause the panel here um, and throw it open to you all. Firstly, if you want to give any feedback from your little discussions you had, what, what were those burning issues or reflections that you had? Um, but also, if you have any questions for the panel, we might take sort of three or four comments um, and do them in groups, if that works for everyone. Thanks very much. Um, uh, my name is Michael Wilson. I'm from Palladium. Um, I'm not sure whether these are questions or, or comments that um, members of the panel might like to respond to, and I've got three very briefly. One is... Um, Elements of this discussion, um, and I'm glad particularly Rosie um, raised it this afternoon, remind me a little bit about the debate around violence against women and gender-based violence in international development that we had kind of 15 years ago, and um, the question of whether culture is an excuse. So I put to the panel that question, um, can we, do we have to go back to that? question in this slightly new and different debate or can we uh, can we accept the progress we made in that discussion over the last 15 years? Secondly, um, again this reminds me of that discussion 15 years ago, um, this is to a degree a bit of a gender discussion. Um, so look at uh, <laughs> gender distribution in the room, it's roughly five to one. Um, so uh, how are we dealing with that? That this is not a this safeguarding discussion is not actually a discussion which is initiated by women um, for men to respond to, particularly when you look at um, incidents and perpetrators, the the the, um, the the profile of perpetrators. And the third that came up in this discussion, a very brief discussion of this, um, about, um, about our own experiences. Um, the question of organisational structures, and there's clearly, including in the international development community, um, a range of structures from you know, companies like mine, where um, organisational expectations, uh, values and codes of practice can be set by a board and a CEO, uh, in a, in, you know, a, a pretty directive manner, and compliance is pretty clear, versus a federation structure. You know, you're an organisation with, um, what, what's yours, 160? 160 countries. 160 countries. That, that's a very different set of expectations in terms of talking about, um, talking about how, to, how to enforce uh, a set of expectations. And associated with that, uh, does that mean that organisations are changing because they see they need to change, or are they being regulated to change effectively by this uh, by this process that uh, that Juliet's talked about? And how do we how do we deal with that conundrum? Sorry, that was too many things. That's great. Thank you. Uh, contributions. Yep. Great top, by the way. I am Sarah Spiker from the Cotton Foundation and um, just have a love and advice for anybody on the panel, I guess, about 
um, working with downstream partners. And I think Tina started to touch on it a little bit, but um, certainly uh, a more challenging space. So if anyone's got any details of wisdom, um, we'd love to hear. Any other comments and questions? Yeah, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, not sure if this relates to downstream partners. I'm not sure I know what downstream partner is, but someone can tell me. Um, uh, I just want to flag, I guess, uh, a missing piece, I think, in, in the puzzle here, which is the role of the national level NGO networks in this discussion. I think it's great to hear the work that ACT has been doing and with the Australian-based NGOs. Uh, certainly at IFO, uh, I work for a, a global network of NGOs, but we do a lot of our work through supporting the national level networks, often of national NGOs. Many of them are very, very aware of this topic, very, are doing interesting and exciting work on this topic, and probably have done more work than you would expect coming in for, as from an outside perspective, trying to support your partners at the national level. So they could be a good point of call to, to touch base with those national networks in the different countries you're working in and see what's being done, are there codes of conduct for the national network that your organisation is already working towards and your code of conduct coming in may actually be not as progressive or not as culturally relevant as theirs. There's a thought, maybe, and it's a reflection. Thanks. Great. We might start... Oh, I might just take one more. Makeda's got one, and then we'll go to the panel. Um, I think it's being recorded, so I think you have to have the microphone. Just a reflection from me and, and something that I'm thinking about as well. A lot of our organisations also work in Indigenous communities in Australia, um, and I'm, there's a lot of reflection at the moment, um, particularly, sorry, Michaela from Act Associates. We work in um, with uh, nurse family partnerships and things like that. Um, so it's, I just want to sort of throw that into the mix as well. When we're talking about cultural issues we're not just talking about in Cambodia and elsewhere but also what are we doing around the indigenous work that we do as well. Great thank you. Um, I might pass over to Micah and Liz if you want to contribute as well around some of those I mean there's the issue around partners which does come up in the report and I think it would be interesting um, to touch on that but also the gender discussion like how, how we're dealing with that so maybe if you could touch on a couple of those sure. questions. Okay. So it is absolutely true that this is, um, you know, this is a gendered discussion, but we have to recognise, and we've recognised in the report, that um, men can also be victims of sexual violence. And we actually found that proportionately that's more likely to occur in incidents that occur between aid workers. So of incidents that were reported to us uh, where the gender um, of the victim survivor was known, 15% were men. Um, so it is really important to be to be aware of that. Um, in terms of engaging men in the discussion, we've heard through uh, interviews and focus groups that that can be a challenge, um, and that um, I think organisations will need to find ways to bring men on board and to make it a, a discussion that involves everyone. Um, we heard from some people that men also consider this to be to reflect on them as. Um, members of their organisations and they see it as a reputational um, issue for them as, 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 as uh, professionals that they want to make sure that they're aligned with, uh, that they're working for organisations that are doing the right thing. Um, so so there, are, there are lots of, of considerations. Um, I'll just see if I wrote down anything else. Um, and obviously there's a role for, for leadership as well. Um, 
In terms of organisational size, uh, and oh, do you want to... No, no. Yeah. In terms of yeah. just on Michael's points on organisational size, um, we did find that um, larger organisations did have um, more, um, in some senses, more resources to, to address safeguarding, but that smaller organisations also had a lot of strengths, particularly in their relationships with downstream partners and being able to tap into um, the cultural context and having strengthened those relationships. So I think that different organisational profiles will find that they have different strengths. Um, and ultimately, because different organisations have different strengths, the collaboration through, be it a resource hub or a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring scheme or a um, or a, a community of practice will, will hopefully be able to mean that all organisations, regardless of their profile, will be able to um, deliver the best safeguarding that, um, that they can. Um, I might just pass on to other panel members to... Yeah, I was just thinking maybe Sarah as well, because you work within ACFID and have that visibility of all the different organisational types, but also some that work with partners and some that don't, some that are in consortiums. So how, how would you address those questions? Yeah, so I think particularly speaking to the, the structures and the different structures, I think this what's, what this speaks to is we've really got to be careful of a one-size-fits-all approach to any of this. Um, so the policies, frameworks and reporting need to provide a really concrete framework. Um, they need to provide a real indication of what minimum standards are, what expectations are and, and some pathways to meet them. But there's two things. One is um, we can't be driven to feed that beast um, because then what we do is shape our safeguarding around reporting up rather than protecting down. So, um, so there's... What we need to do is make sure, this is of course the nice easy part, that everything is actually contextually driven. So if you are a small organisation which works well with your downstream partners, then you're going to get some fabulous work coming from your partners up to you. Um, if you are an international consortium, again, it's about making sure that there's minimum standards and agreed norms, agreed definitions, but that when it is implemented, it is implemented in a way that is culturally and contextually appropriate. And that doesn't just mean in your developing country partners, that also means in your head office. What gets implemented in Australia may not be what should be implemented in Denmark. or um, So it applies across the board. And so I think it's really important we find that balance and that balance is hard because often we are driven by policies that can be quite blunt instruments. Um, and so making sure we get those voices and those multiple voices up and in is incredibly important and not always easy to do. Um, it's going to take a lot of time um, because we need to create, and, and Tita and, and Rosie have talked about this, this trust. Um, if we don't have trust, we don't have voice. Um, and if we don't have voice, we have poorly delivered and planned policies and programs. So I think that's one. Again, I think it speaks to this culture issue as well. Um, I, I think uh, absolutely there's been a lot of movement over time, particularly on child protection, on things like gender and all that sort of thing. I would hate to think we have to go back to all those discussions to start with. I think they're absolutely fabulous progress that we can build on. But again, it needs to be culturally specific because otherwise you just get people right offside and you're not going to go anywhere or everywhere. Um, in terms of ACFID, we are incredibly lucky. We have 120 organisations 
plus their downstream partners, as you may choose to call them. Um, you know, we have people like Rosie and Tita to draw on. Like, we are, have a wealth of context-specific, fabulous knowledge, and basically our job is to, to bring that together um, and to have those discussions and to create those safe spaces to talk about difficult things, and that's one of the key things that we're going to do, um, and to make a leadership role. Um, and I think that speaks to domestically as well. I think we do have to be careful that we don't shut off the international aid and development sector in this discussion. This is happening everywhere. This is happening in all sorts of types of cultures in Australia and globally, and I think there's a lot we can learn from what's happening domestically and vice versa. So opportunities where we can share um, would be really open to doing so. And finally, to talk about national <laughs> standards and NGOs. Absolutely. Um, so just as an example, one of the projects that ACFID is involved in is the Global um, Civil Society Standard. So this is um, the design of a, a, a simple CSO standard that would apply to any civil society organisation of any size in any country. And what that's done for us is a range of things. It's made us look at our code in terms of how is it um, in applying across a range of different scenarios. But it also means we're working with nine partner organisations in doing that. And some of them are from developed countries like the US, whereas others are from India or Kenya or Cambodia. And they all have their own codes of conduct. And so we are learning through that process very much about some really interesting and exciting models, like you know peer review of compliance standards and all these really interesting things that are happening. So we, we are quite conscious and quite aware of that. And um, you know, we, we regularly listen and, and hear about that. But um, uh, again, it's also about making sure that our members, what we hope the code does, and I think it does well, is provide a framework for our members that provides a guideline, but also allows that flexibility to implement in country and in context in a way that is not counterproductive to good development and good progress. Um. Tita, I might say a couple of points and then perhaps you can add more about working with partners. Yes, she said she Great, fantastic. Um, so picking up a, a couple of the points and particularly around national partners, um, I think for me particularly partnering with women's organisations and thinking about investment from a broader perspective of investing in feminist organisations and women's groups because so often when there are these issues in these countries, there aren't the support services available um, to women when we're looking at broader issues around sexual harassment, sexual exploitation, family violence. Um, I think that's a key thing for us to be thinking about as a sector. Um, and on organisational structure, so when the um, sexual misconduct uh, issues hit from Oxfam in the media, one of the things that we did for WaterAid Australia was a review done by the Humanitarian Action Group, which looked at our policies and our culture, and it gave us some really good uh, recommendations. Uh, and one of the things that it showed was no matter what organisation you're in, no matter how great your culture might be at a moment in time, there's always risks of subcultures. Uh, and to my reflection's been how do we make sure as a team we're always positively, proactively talking about those subcultures. So it might be um, a particular part of the world that we're working in. Um, or, for example, one of the areas that I had, to be honest, never thought about, one of the risk areas for us is our young fundraising staff, our predominantly young, predominantly female 
a lot of uh, donors are older men and there have been a couple of incidents that we'd never had reported to us before. So just being really proactive about having conversations about monitoring risk as you were talking about and making it part of all of our conversations. And I think to pick up on some of your points, Michael, not a special new conversation. This, you know, the things that we're talking about, as Kate mentioned in her introduction, aren't new, but we have an opportunity, yeah? This crisis, you know, they, what do they say? Always make opportunity of a crisis. We need to use it so that it's not a moment in time where, yes, we're talking about it again, and then we forget about it. In two years' time, we're at a conference where we feel like we're having the same conversation again. We need to sustain it as a sector, and we need to really openly share the challenges that we're having and the learning. I think, I can't remember if it was in the VIFM report, but I got a sense that what you were saying was, International NGOs, we can't wallpaper our organisation with pictures of women and say we're working on women's empowerment if we aren't grappling with the deep gendered inequalities uh, in our programming and in our, in our work. So I'll pause there and hand over to Tida. Tida, can you hear us? It would be wonderful if you're able to talk a little bit to that question around how to work with partners. Yes, thank you, Rosie and Ken. I, I would like to add a little bit more about uh, how what it, I mean, the, in real practice, that what ethic model work with the partner. And uh, normally we, yeah, what it has the safeguarding policy or, I mean, for that and also for child safeguarding. So we, after we sign a contract with the, our partner, we have the partner orientation workshop. And all of these kind of policy like code of conduct, or safeguarding and child safeguarding need to be uh, the topic that we provide a very clear uh, induction to all of our partner staff. Yeah. And 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 also before we signing the partnership agreement, we check do our partner have the child safeguarding policy, have the uh, safeguarding policy. If they don't have that policy in place yet, we support them to develop the policy for their organization. And we try to support and sharing the resource, sharing the document as possible we can. And also inside World Aid, we also, we have discussed about the complaint mechanism. So if example, if our partner, if the community member want to file the complaint about our partner behavior related to the program implementation, how should the community submit the complaint to us? So we did discuss a little bit uh, on that, but not fully uh, finalized yet because we need to work on the policy as well. And the another thing about the uh, uh, responsible team member who work with the partner, and also with the consultant, need to provide a regular orientation. So orientation about safeguarding, yes. So they have to be clear about what a uh, commitment and it is also their commitment as well. And we provide the regular training or refreshing policy. So like today, today we have the annual uh, partner workshop and we have three days for annual partnership workshop. And today, this is the first day, and 
we are for the providing the charge safeguarding training to all of our, our partner today. Yeah. So that's all from me. Wonderful. Thank, thank you, Theodore. And I hope we haven't taken you too long away from your partnership workshop. <laughs> but it's, it's, um, it's really great to hear those very concrete examples around what can happen. We've got about five minutes, so what I might ask the panellists to do is just take a minute or so each if there are any final reflections you would like to share before we break the tea break. So I might start with you, Mike. Yeah, no, that's fine. Look, I think this discussion has been a really uh, productive example of how different aspects of the community can work together to bring about change. So we've talked about policies and regulation, we talked about systems and resources, and we talked about culture as well. And I think that it has to be a united and whole of whole of system, whole of um, sector approach. Um, that's what um, we found in the report, and I think that this panel discussion has been a really good example, particularly with the help of TIDA as well, to really um, enliven those discussions. Um, um, and I think it's um, a sign of great, you know, indication of great optimism. Great. Juliet. Thank you. Just a couple of really quick things. I think, you know, we've got the policy which is coming, but I think what happens when we all, here we all understand the importance of the relationships and the communication and the conversations that we have and don't be afraid of engaging with risk and don't be afraid of um, doing really good, having some strong due diligence processes that do involve those conversations and really understanding. And I think one of the key things that, you know, I'll take out of this is, yeah, the, the importance of those relationships, but also being very clear around what, what the, where the world's shifting and, and where the bar is actually set. Um, I think for me, as I was, we have to get into the, the difficult conversations and you said animated uh, conversations. So I, I think that for me is a key thing within organisations to, to talk through those. And for me, the, the thing that I've learnt, particularly now that we've really amped up our culture, we are receiving more reports and that is a good thing. So that's been a really difficult thing for some of my teams who really pride us on having a really strong values-based culture. They feel like they're letting WaterAid down by having reports. So I'm having to make sure we say, no, that's a good thing because we need to be hearing about concerns on the whole spectrum. And then for us, we're really learning how to implement this idea of victim-centred, what that means in terms of their voice, of how decisions are made, who finds out about information. This idea of reporting to authorities is going to be one that we really need to think through carefully, just as we've done before on fraud um, and child protection. So there are a couple of closing thoughts. I would absolutely echo Rosie. I think I, I had a very um, fabulous, easy statement at the, the Diffid Safeguarding Conference where someone said, if you're not feeling uncomfortable about talking about this, you're not talking about it right. You're talking about the easy stuff. So um, I would encourage you to feel deeply uncomfortable over a period of time. Um, and also just to keep talking. So there is a real risk that um, with the fact that this came out of a crisis, that once those policies and systems seem to be in place, that this, this disappears and goes away. Um, and we know from, from gender and from child protection that we can't lose momentum on this or things don't change. So, um, and the easier part 
um, are, the, are the systems and processes. So I would really encourage you to, to keep discussing this, um, to look beyond our sector. So as you say, the Indigenous um, areas working on this, this is happening at all sectors and the more voices we can get on this, the more we can learn and the more we can build momentum on. Great, and then Tita, did you have a last reflection to share? Yeah, I have a very uh, short reflection. Uh, thank you, Kate, and everyone uh, that allowed me to be part of this discussion. It was my great honor. And my last reflection, it was a, a, great, a great opportunity to hear from all of you and passionate about the safeguarding and child safeguarding. Very good. But uh, one thing I want to raise uh, in terms of the social law, oh, I think that uh, it will be, be nice if we, uh, aid sector and also the government sector and private sector work, work together uh, in order to, I mean that uh, in order to promote gender equality related to the social norm related to the gender equality, it, it very uh, will be uh, quicker, I mean, the change will be quicker, and especially involve more men, more, more men than women. I mean, men, if, if men uh, involve more and men can understand well about the gender equality, I mean that uh, the perception of the social norm and uh, culture will be changed quicker. Yeah, thank you. Tita, thank you so much. I can't tell you how valuable it's been to have you contribute to the discussion today. And um, I think just to wrap up, I mean, it's an exciting few months ahead um, in terms of progress. So Acton and DFAT are obviously working really hard on the um, VIFM report and its findings. And I know that lots of individual organisations are, are working within their own organisations as well. So it's really encouraging to see the conversation happening. Thank you so much for the contribution from you. But if we could also just put our hands together and thank the panellists very much. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>